0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them out and turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 this morning as we are journeying through the gospel of Mark in the series of messages. Mark chapter 2, we'll be starting in verse 13 in a few minutes as you find your way there. When I was a child, I never had a pediatrician. That might surprise you. I never went to a a pediatrician. It's not because we didn't uh, care about our health or or didn't care about uh, taking care of ourselves. It was because my grandfather was a doctor. So from my earliest days, uh, I, I never went to a pediatrician's office. The only doctor I ever knew was my grandfather. So when, uh, when we got sick or when we needed uh, some kind of medical treatment, I never went to a hospital. I never went to, a, you know, an office. I, my parents drove me to Holland Street in Somerville uh, to the first floor of a triple-decker, uh, which is where my grandfather kept his office. And I never knew what a waiting room looked like because all I knew as a waiting room was my Aunt Mary's kitchen table and we would go to uh, Aunt Mary's kitchen table, and the waiting room would consist of uh, orange soda and stale cheese puffs. (laughs) uh, That was her specialty. She specialized in those stale cheese. I don't know how she always got them stale, but always managed to have stale cheese puffs there for us. And so we we, uh, would go there for everything from our checkups to shots to everything, and it was always convenient having a doctor, you know, obviously in the family. Some of you have that in your families as well, and that's a privilege. It's great to be able to make a call, you know, and just say, hey, what's this? Or uh, when we were on vacation, we'd go down the Cape, and my grandfather would be with us, and, you know, we'd get a little too much water in the ear swimming, you know. He'd just get out his little bag and, you know, look in your ear, write out a prescription, and take care of it. It's real convenient, and I'm thankful and grateful I'm grateful for the access we, we all have, to, you know, to modern medicine and medical treatments. You know, it's a big discussion in our country right now, right? Making sure everybody has access to medical treatment. I'm grateful. I don't have my grandfather around to do that anymore, and my kids don't know that and uh, don't know that, uh, that, what that was like to have someone like that, but I'm grateful for the doctors they have. I'm grateful for easy access to pediatricians. Last Saturday, many of our ladies were at the tea, and I was getting ready on my way to go to the tea. Uh, they had asked me to close it out in prayer and to say a few words, and so I was happy to do that, so I'm getting the kids ready. We're just about getting ready to go into the car, and my daughter comes up to me and says, "Isaac has a nerd in his ear." That was an interesting statement. <laughs> Not sure what to say. I, a nerd, if you don't know, is a little tiny candy, right? I, I, at least I assumed that's what she meant. She didn't mean a, you know, a guy with thick glasses and a pocket <laughs> protector and a high IQ was stuck in my son's ear. I, I was at least able to make the logical jump that it was a little piece of candy, and I, I thought that's interesting. So I went to Isaac. I said, Isaac, do, do, do you have a nerd in your ear? And he says, yep. The next question was... Isaac, why do you have a nerd in your ear? <laughs> Isabella put it there. <laughs> that raised all kinds of other questions, but I thought we had gone far enough. And I said, all right, well, let's get a look. Get them up on the bathroom counter. You know how this, you know, got a flashlight in my mouth. I'm like looking in there and, and sure enough, this little pink piece of candy stuck back there. And I thought, well, I can get this out. You know, and I thought, well, I get the tweezers, and yeah, I know you're not supposed to do that. Don't, I know, I know, right? But I thought I could just reach it, you know, and you started and it started going back further. I'm like, forget it, I can't do it. Make a call to the doctor, and that's always a fun call to make, right? Uh, So what's the problem? My son has a nerd in his ear, and pediatricians are great because they've heard it all before. They're like, oh, okay, all right, you know, come on, you know, the doctor will come back to you, you know, and he calls us back, tells us to come in, and, and thankfully, I have a doctor that lives for this stuff. My kid's pediatrician sees this as a challenge, and he's like, oh, this is great, you know, and he's like, which tool should we use? And, you know, and he's like, you know, within 10 seconds, he's got the nerd out, pulled it out, and then he's telling stories of all the other things he's pulled out of kids' ears and noses and... And, and all kinds of things. So I'm grateful for access to, uh, you know, good uh, medical care. You know, I realize around the world, that's not the case for everybody. Even in our country, that's not the case for everybody. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for doctors who have committed their lives to being around sick people. You ever thought about it that way? I mean, most of us spend our time and our lives trying to avoid sick people right? I mean, even on Sunday morning, some of you will come up to me and say, oh, I'm not shaking hands today, Pastor. You know, I'm sick. I don't want to get, I don't want to, get, you know, give it and I want you to catch it. You know, we spend our lives with antibacterial stuff and wipes and, you know, trying to keep and stay away from sick people. Doctors have gone into a profession where they have spend, said, we will spend our lives and our days around sick people. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for people who will put themselves in that situation, because if you're going to be a good doctor, you've got to be around sick people, right? I mean, you you can't be a good doctor and never get around a person who's sick, and that truth is very obvious, and that's probably the reason that Jesus really used it as a metaphor in the passage we're going to look at this morning. To talk not so much about how doctors need to be around sick people, but he really used it as a teaching opportunity to talk about how Christians, how followers of Christ, how people who follow God should behave in a world full of people who don't, and how we should relate. Uh, Those of us that call ourselves Christians and followers of Jesus, how do we relate to people uh, living in a world of people who don't? And that's the question that Jesus really gets at here. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you're a Christian here today, this is an important message for us because we sometimes get off track of how we're to relate to the world around us. If you're in here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is an important message for you to understand how the Bible does teach that Christians are supposed to relate to the world around us. So uh, I've titled this, uh, this uh, message this morning, uh, Hippocratic Oath, or hypocritical oaths, and uh, hopefully by the end of it, we can figure out where we fall. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, this is what the Word of God says. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were there, were there, were many who followed him. Where did I get that sentence wrong? Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him, there we go, and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I want us to look at that last statement, that response that Jesus makes right there. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I think this question really gets at this topic of how does a follower of Jesus, how does a follower of God, how does a person who's endeavoring to live a godly life, how does a Christian, how are we to relate and live our lives amidst a world that isn't following God, that isn't trying and endeavoring to live a godly life, how are we to relate and live in the midst of that world? I'd like to get at it by looking at two questions I think this passage answers today. The two questions are this, where are you? and why are you there? Where are you, and why are you there? In fact, if you're taking notes, those are two good questions, so write right write at the top of your paper, where are you, and why are you there? And I want to look at that in the context of these two groups in this passage, Jesus and the religious leaders. Let's first look at Jesus. Where are you? Where is Jesus? Well, he's in this passage. We first see him. He's teaching along the, uh, the sea, And then he comes across this man named Levi, who all we're told is a tax collector. He asks Levi to follow him, and then he goes to Levi's house for dinner. So where he is, is at this tax collector's house, having dinner with Levi, and as best we can figure, his friends, who are also tax collectors and described as sinners. Now it's important for us to understand, if we're going to know where Jesus is, we've got to understand a little bit about this business of tax collectors? Because you might have a problem with the IRS. You may not be a big fan of the IRS, or maybe you work for the IRS and you are, I don't know. But probably many of us aren't big fans. But even if you're not a big fan of the IRS, I can almost guarantee you, you do not have the perspective of the IRS that these people in Jesus's day had of tax collectors. It's a little bit different. I mean, even if you don't like seeing the money come out of your paycheck every week or every month, or if you're in business for yourself, you don't like writing that quarterly out, you know, to, to the United States government or that check on April 15th or April, you know, at 11.59 at night or whatever you do to do that. You might not like that, but at least you can trust that there is some system in place, That you can trust that, okay, I know what my bill is going to be at the end of the year or the end of the quarter or what's going to be taken out of my check. There has been some system, some regulation put in place to bring some guidance to that. Not so in the days of Jesus. Here's how the taxes worked in the Roman Empire in the days of Jesus. The Roman Empire obviously taxed and they expected income from people in their empire, but they didn't want to collect the taxes. So what they did is they sold the right to collect the taxes. And they would sell them usually to people, men in the, what was called the equestrian class. And they were called farmer generals because they would be tax farmers. They would be the ones who farmed tax. They didn't farm wheat or corn, they farmed taxes. And so they would bid and auction it off. And obviously the highest bidder, the, would, the Roman government would award it to them. You know, if you're gonna give us the most money, will award you the right to collect taxes in this region. Well, the farmer generals, the equestrian class, they were a little too good to collect. They weren't going to collect the taxes themselves. So they employed people called chief tax collectors. And chief tax collectors were given the uh, responsibility by the farmer general to collect taxes over their region. Well, the chief tax collectors, they didn't want to collect taxes either. So they would hire the person we call the tax collector. In this particular case, the man's name is Levi. He's a tax collector, also called a publican, and he would be the one that would actually collect the tax. But here's the deal. Rome was going to get their cut. They knew what they were getting. The farmer general, he was going to get a cut. I mean, he paid a lot of money for the rights to do this, so he was going to get his cut. Well, the chief tax collector, you know, he's not doing this for nothing, so he's going to get his cut. And then the tax collector, he's not doing this for nothing. He's got to feed his family. He's going to get some. So by the time the tax gets to, you know, Peter and Andrew, after they bring in their catch of fish, you know, they're paying the Roman government. They're paying this farmer general. They're paying the chief tax collector. They're paying the tax collector. And all of this is falling on. the only face of all this is poor Levi, right? I mean, he's the only face they see. So all of their angst, all of their frustration, all of their anger falls against the tax collector. And so when they say tax collector in the Bible, it's not just the IRS, it's not just, it is some guy, and you need to think of him not so much as a tax collector, almost more as a loan shark, almost more as organized, sanctioned crime, uh, as extortion, if you will is probably more along the lines of what they were doing. They would take as much as they can get. It wasn't a set amount. They would get as much as they could. And so uh, that's more what it was. So when they they say tax collector in the Bible, these are people who were despised. They uh, They were considered traitors because here they are. They're Jewish people collecting taxes from other fellow Jews that were passing it on and working for the Roman government. They were extortionists. They were, they were the low of the low. And here's Rabbi Jesus, who comes along, and he doesn't just talk to him. He doesn't just say, follow me, invite him to leave his tax booth. He goes and has dinner at his house. And what's important to understand about that is, you know, we go to dinner a lot of places, and we don't think much of it. You go out to a restaurant, and you don't think much of it. You just go out to Chili's, and you get your food, and you leave, and that's it. But there's a different situation. When you went to dinner at somebody's house in the days of Jesus and had table fellowship with somebody, you weren't just having a meal. You were coming under their roof. You were coming under their hospitality. You were identifying with them as someone who you had fellowship with. And that's what Jesus was doing. And so where was Jesus? Jesus was in the home of the woe of the woe of the, the people nobody associated with. Not any of the holy or religious people. And that's where Jesus was. Where was Jesus? Jesus was close enough to share. That's where Jesus was. He was close enough to share. He was close enough to share in their food. Right? You gotta be he was close enough to say, hey, you know, past the matzah, right? I mean he was close, he was close enough to, to share in their food and share in their meal. He was close enough to share in their scorn, in their ridicule. He was close enough to them that the religious leaders scorned Jesus just like they scorned the people he was having dinner with. He was close enough to be an object of their ridicule and to be identified with them and to receive the same discrimination that the people he was eating with received. He was close enough to share that with them. And because of that, <clears throat> he was close enough to share the love of God with them in actions and in words. Jesus was close enough to share. That's where Jesus was because he was a doctor and he was going to be among sick people. See, if you're a doctor, you've got to be among sick. If you're a cobbler, you better find people who need their shoes fixed. If you sell cars, you better be among people who need to buy cars. And if you're a savior, you're going to be around people who need saving. And so Jesus was around these people who needed saving, and he was close enough to share. Share in their food, share in their pain, share in their scorn, share in the discrimination they experienced, and share God's love with them. Well, let's continue with this question, uh, where are you, and change it from Jesus to the religious leaders, where were they? Well, the religious leaders weren't close enough to share, but they were close enough to see. Right, they were, I I picture them kind of outside of Levi's house Uh, certainly not under whatever overhang because that might still make them unclean they were far enough that they could see but certainly not close enough to share Uh, with the risk of sounding a little like Dr. Seuss they were close enough to glare Uh. but not close enough to share and that's it, right? They, they would glare, they would, they would discriminate, they would judge, you know, they were there. They were, they were outside and I picture it, I don't know what it was like, but you know, I picture maybe there's a couple of them standing out there and some of the other religious leaders walk by and say, well, what are you doing? You know, we're looking at all that, you know that rabbi everyone's talking about, he's been healing everybody, he's been teaching, everyone's going after him. Yeah, he's in Levi's house, Levi the tax collector. Yeah, Levi the tax collector. He's in there with his friends and all those sinners. Some rabbi, he is. And they were close enough to see. They weren't close enough or had desire enough to do anything about it. And the reason Jesus got so upset at the religious leaders all the time is because they were the ones most equipped to do something about it. They were the ones that had all the training in the scriptures. They were the ones that sat in synagogue all the time, listening and learning. They were the ones that would teach others. They were the ones that had all of the knowledge that would be needed to help these people who needed saving. They just weren't willing to get close enough to get any on them. They weren't co- willing to get close enough to get a little dirty. They weren't close enough to share. So Jesus would get upset with them routinely because they had the knowledge. They were expected to, but they wouldn't. Make no mistake about it. These religious leaders would have loved nothing more than to be at a testimony service. And to have Levi get up there and say, I was a tax collector for the Roman Empire, but God touched me and I was saved and I left that life and now I'm clean and I go to temple and synagogue all the time and they would like nothing more to be able to clap for that testimony. They just weren't willing to get dirty enough to be part of the process of making it happen. They weren't willing enough to be close enough to share God's love with them. They weren't willing enough to be there and be a part of the process. So where are you? Uh, Jesus was in the house, and he was close enough to share in their food and share in their scorn and share God's love with them. The religious leaders were outside the house. They were close enough to see and to glare, but not close enough to do anything about it. Uh, my question to us is, where are you? Where am I? When it comes to people who don't know God, when it comes to people who are living uh, lives contrary to the gospel, contrary to uh, what Christ would teach, where are we? Are we close enough that we will share with them our, our food, close enough that we will share with them in, our, in their pain, close enough that we can share God's love with them? Or are we standing at a distance, close enough to see but not close enough to share? The second question I think we need to look at this morning and uh, that this passage answers is why are you there? Why are you there? It's pretty easy to answer why the Pharisees and the religious leaders were there. They were there to judge. Uh, they were there to cast judgment. They were there to, uh, to make sure that there was a separation between themselves and others. They were there uh, to throw some verbal bombs at Jesus and his followers. They were there to make sure that people knew where they stood. They were there to judge. That's why they were there. It's interesting that uh, sometimes as Christians, um, you know, the more and more we, we uh, the longer and longer we follow Christ, it's, it's natural at times that it's uh, sometimes our re- uh, what's natural is our relationships often to become formed around the body of Christ. And that's good and that's right. Uh, we ought to long for fellowship with the body of Christ. Uh, Where that can turn to a negative thing is if we ever start to think, well, we're not supposed to then share and be around those who aren't Christians. And that's a danger. Maybe that's never a danger you've fallen into, but it's certainly a danger that people in the church throughout history have fallen into. Even in Paul's day, first century church, people fell into it. People fell into this this idea that... um, that Christians maybe are supposed to be totally separate and apart and never come in contact with people who aren't Christians and who are living lives that aren't pleasing to Christ. In fact, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth, and he recognized that maybe a previous letter he had written was being misunderstood, and he wanted to correct some of their thinking of how to relate to the world around them. So he writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 9. It says, I have written you in my letter not, that's a previous letter from 1 Corinthians. We don't have that letter, uh, but it was apparently a previous letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a Brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. And catch this last line, with such a man, do not even eat, right? That goes back to that idea of do not have table fellowship, do not that that relational idea. And so Paul is saying, look, it's important. There are some times that it's appropriate to judge. Andy Stanley, his comment on this passage, and I think it's, it's a helpful one, he says, look, some people look at the Bible and they say, oh, don't judge me. The Bible says don't judge. And In some cases it does, but really the Bible doesn't say don't judge. The Bible tells us who to judge, and we get that wrong sometimes. We think we're supposed to judge people who are outside of the church and living ungodly lives. Paul is saying don't be surprised when the ungodly live ungodly lives. Don't be surprised when the sinners sin. I mean, don't be surprised. They they haven't signed on to it. They They haven't signed up to live a life for God. And so we don't be surprised at that. But when those in the church who call themselves Christians, who call themselves brothers and sisters, who want to be counted among the church, will live lives of du- uh, duplicitous lives that, that, that want to uh, say they are following Christ and yet live a life that is obviously not following Christ, they're saying, use accountability, Paul's saying, use accountability, discernment and judgment in this way, so that they will come back, if we went to the further passage, it would be to come back into the body of Christ. It's always for reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians, Paul points to that, that the This brother he's talking about actually is to be welcomed back into the body after repenting and coming to Christ. But he says that's where the discernment needs to be. And so the Pharisees, their problem was, they had a problem with sinners acting like sinners. They had a problem with the ungodly acting like the ungodly. He says, why would Jesus be there? So they were there to judge. But that's not why Jesus was there. If we continue on this question, why are you there? Why was Jesus there? Jesus was there to heal and to save sinners. Jesus was there to care for them. He was close enough to share, but again at the Dr. Seuss risk here, I'm going to put it this way. He was close enough to share, but distinct enough to care right it was both of those things he was distinct enough among them he didn't have the disease he wasn't infected with the sickness so he could be among them and help them and show them a different way and he could be distinct even while he's among them sharing with them so he can show them the way to god he did not he was not of he did not have this disease he did not have the sickness he was coming as a physician to bring healing Right? If a doctor has got the same sickness you have, he's going to spend his time trying to heal himself and won't be able to offer that healing to you. Jesus comes distinct and different to share and to bring healing to those who need it. Right? And so Jesus is close enough to share, but he's also, at the same time, he's distinct enough to care for them as well. this is why I titled the message uh, the way I did. Uh, The Hippocratic Oath, uh, it's, you know, it goes back obviously to ancient Greek days and uh, uh, Hippocrates, right? Am I right on that? Um, uh, But it goes back quite a ways and nobody really uses the ancient Hippocratic Oath anymore. It's been amended two, three, four times and some of the amending things I... I uh, wouldn't necessarily agree with, um, but some medical schools do use some form of it today. Uh, but the overall idea of the Hippocratic Oath that physicians take is this. You will commit yourself to caring for the sick. You will commit yourself to uh, caring in a way that uh, it cares, is full of integrity, that cares for their dignity, that, val- that values their privacy, that you will offer that help as you're able to do that, that you will do it in such a way that, that values the person you're treating. It basically commits you to caring for the sick. And that's what Jesus was doing. But the Pharisees were more interested in just living a life of hypocrisy that says I'll have the knowledge and the ability but not offer any real help. And so why are you there? Jesus was where he was because his values were different than the religious leaders of his day. The religious leaders valued power and reputation before men. Jesus valued people who needed saving and pleasing his heavenly father. The religious leaders' goals were staying ritualistically clean and keeping up appearances. Jesus' goal was pleasing his father and saving the lost. The religious leaders' priorities were themselves Jesus' priority was his father and people who needed saving. So that's why he was there. But my question to us, to you and to me, is why are you there? Why are you where you are? If you're standing outside close enough to see but not close enough to share, why are you there? Is it because of fear? Why won't you get close enough to share people's food, people's pain, to share God's love with them. If you are close enough and you have these close relationships with people who don't know Christ and live in ungodly lives, then why are you there? Are you there to share God's love with them? Are you there to not only share with them but be distinct enough to bring the message of God's love to them? Because there's some people who are close enough to share, but they're not distinct enough to care. Right? They just kind of blend in. They're just there. They're not distinct. They they have the disease themselves, so they can't bring the healing. See, it's only when Jesus has healed you that you can go to someone and say, let me show you the way to God. Let me show you where you can find life. And there are other people who they are distinct enough to care, and they get the knowledge, they get the information, they're living a holy life, but they just never get close enough for it to make a difference in anyone's life. They just never get close enough to get dirty. They just never get close enough to have it make a difference in someone's life. one person kind of to put some feet to this and see what it looks like. And in real life, I was reading um, Don Sanukian, who's one of my favorite uh, professors of preaching. And he was sharing a message on this passage as well. And he had titled this message, his idea of the message was this, do you have the eyes of a physician or the eyes of a judge? Is your view that of a physician or that of a judge? When you view people, do you view them through the eyes of a doctor? as people who need healing, as people who need help, as people who uh, have, experience, have something in their life that has caused them to live and act the way they are? Or do you have the eyes of a judge? And it's a good question, right? The eyes of a physician or the eyes of a judge? So Don and gives a couple examples that maybe bring it down to real life and maybe they connect with you, maybe they don't, but, uh, but, but something similar to this probably... Maybe familiar to you. He says, maybe it looks like this. Maybe it looks like your morning cup of Starbucks in the morning. And you go to the same Starbucks perhaps every morning or Dunkin' Donuts, whatever. You go to the same place every morning. You get your coffee. You order the same beverage. And and maybe you happen to notice every morning that the same uh, girl, young lady, is there ordering her coffee at the exact same time you are. Now it's obvious from the way you're dressed and the way she's dressed that you probably come from different worlds and you're probably going to different places. Maybe you're heading to your job in a high-rise in downtown Boston and you could tell that she's probably heading to class in a local campus or something. She's got her backpack with her. Uh, You can't even count the piercings that you can see. You don't know what the tattoos mean. You can't make them out as much as you've strained at them and tried to figure out what they mean. She's dressed in all black, her head's always down. She barely utters a word except to pay for her drink. And you can tell just from being there that you're from different worlds. You're you're probably operating in different realms. But you see her there every morning, and you wonder, is it just a coincidence or is God giving you an opportunity? And you see her struggle with her backpack, you know, to get out, you know, with her books. And you wonder, should you offer to hold her books while she gets her money to pay for her drink? Or you wonder if maybe one morning you should just pay for her drink. Or maybe every morning you should. You're really asking the question of, should you enter into her world? And I think as we look at this passage, the answer would be, yes, you should. That should the opportunity come and arise, you should enter that world? Should you view her through the eyes of a physician who says, who knows what she's gone through? Has she ever felt loved? Or maybe she's been hurt. Maybe she's been abused. Maybe she's just become disenfranchised or disillusioned, or no one's given her a reason to hope, or who knows? But do you look through the eyes of a physician Now, she may be a Christ follower. I don't know. I can't judge that by outward appearances. But do you look from the eyes of a physician? Or do you just look and cast judgment before even meeting someone? That's the question, right? The guy at the office that's been through two or three divorces, nobody can really remember. He's living with someone who's not his wife now, and she's got a restraining order against him. And he's loud and obnoxious. He always got a sharp word for everyone, and he always thinks everyone's out to get something from him or swindle him. He goes to lunch by himself every day and comes back with a mustard stain on his shirt because he likes the hamburgers at Burger King. And you get a coupon in the mail for burgers at Burger King. And you like hamburgers at Burger King And you wonder if you should take him to lunch one day. But you know, if you do, it won't be just sharing a burger and fries with him. You'll be sharing in his scorn and his ridicule when you come back to the office with him. Because they're going to want to know why you went to lunch with that guy. And you're wondering if it's worth entering into his world. If you should do that if you should share, get close enough to share, or just be close enough to see. I think Jesus in this passage is telling us that if we're going to be the healing that he wants us to be, we've got to be around people who are sick. Or you've been asked to be in the company softball league, and you like softball. And you'd like to play a little bit on a company golf league, whatever it might be. And, and you like to play golf, but you know what it's going to be. You've been to the Christmas parties. And You've been to all the other parties. You know what it's going to be. It's going to be a few innings of softball and then a few hours of drinking beers in the car in the parking lot. And it's going to be uh, wives flirting with men who aren't their husbands and single uh, maybe uh, men trying to pick up uh, women there and, and you just wonder if you want to enter into that place, enter into that world and you wonder if you should. Are you going to be close enough to share, to go and say, yeah, I'll play softball and and be a part of it, and you, and you bring some Cokes to throw in the cooler beside the beers, and, and you buy a glove for the, you know, for the kid, maybe who's a single mom who brings her kid with her because she doesn't have a babysitter, and, she bring, and he sits on the bench, and you sit beside him and tell him about the game, and, and you get close enough to share. But you're still distinct enough to care, and maybe that's what it looks like. Or it looks a little different in your context, but the bottom line is that where are the places in your life that you are close enough to share with people? You share a meal, you share in their pain, and they allow you to share God's love with them while still remaining distinct enough to be able to take them to a place of healing and to care for them. So where are you, and why are you there? Let's pray. Father, God, I thank you for, Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit and your word that speaks to us today. And Lord, in a passage like this, with, with just a very short line from our Savior and our Lord. And God, how much is packed into that, just those few words from our Lord. Say he's a physician. It's among the sick, and he's not called to come the right to call the righteous, but sinners. And Lord, that one line we sometimes spend our whole lives trying to live that out well. And we often fail. It's a balance that you kept perfectly, Jesus, but that we struggle to walk. God, would you help us now? And when you help us today to walk that line and to carry out that balance well. And maybe you're here today and in this moment of prayer with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just ask that you search your heart and just ask these two questions of yourself and allow God's Spirit to ask them. Where are you? Are you close enough to share or just close enough to see? And if you're not in that place where you're close enough to share with people, then I'd ask at this time, just ask the Lord to open up those opportunities to break down anything in your heart that would keep you, break down any fears that would keep you from getting close enough to people to share. but I also, maybe you're here and you say, yeah, yeah, Pastor Rick, I'm close enough to share. I've got lots of friends. I've got lots of acquaintances. But if you ask me if I'm living a distinct life among them and if they would know that, that there's something I have that, to offer them and to share with them of God's love, that I have not really been distinct enough to be able to care for them in that way. And maybe you're here today and you just ask God to help you to live out that life before them, that righteous life, that godly life, not a judgmental one, but one that draws them to God. And maybe that's your prayer today. Father, I just ask that you would, Lord, Lead us as individuals and as families and as a church, Lord. Lead us, Lord, to have those kinds of lives, to be more like Jesus today, to be more like our Lord and Savior. Lord, help us. Help us to overcome our fears. Help us to overcome the pressures around us and to live out this call before you. Lord, it's no good being a doctor if you never get among the sick. Show us how to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? And just before we sing, I'll let you know one more thing. On your way out the door, you know, one thing my grandfather always had on his desk was his prescription pad. You know, I always had that pad with his Americo Picarello at the top and his physician's number. And uh, I've got a few of those that I got after after he died. And uh, there are cherished memory for me and but he always had that physician's pad that he would write out the prescription on right and and so on your way out the door today the ushers are going to give you a little card a little physician's prescription pad and at the top it says kingdom medical it said patient name and address and then it says diagnosis heart damage the cause is sin and prognosis is eternal death if not treated the prescription is the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And so I give this to you. Maybe you'll stick it in your, book, in your Bible as a bookmark. I give this to you with this in mind. If there's someone in your life that you need to get close enough to share to, or maybe you're already close to them, but you want to pray for them, you know, put their name at the top. Do not give this to them. This is not for them. This is for you as a reminder in prayer but you could just write their name at the top and just stick it in your Bible and remember to pray that God would open up doors that you would get close enough to share and be distinct enough to care for them. And uh, we would pray in that way. Let's close our service out and worship to our Lord this morning.